If we've not met, my name is Ben Robertson, and I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, over at the College of William and Mary. And so, especially if you're parents here visiting, I'm really glad that you're here, and I'd love to meet you uh, afterwards. Uh, this morning, we're going to be taking a break from John and looking at Isaiah 7. And as you're turning there, I also just wanted to say thank you to this congregation. Most of you probably know that our, our three-year-old, uh, her appendix ruptured the night of the freshman activities fair on campus. Um, and she's doing great now, and she's home. But this, the emails and the prayers, the meals um, that people have brought to our door and just the kindness, it is a sweet thing to be part of you and be part of the people of God, and you are the hands and feet of Christ to us. And so thank you. Um, so Isaiah 7, uh, and as I said, we've, we've been, as you know, studying through the Gospel of John, and I wanted to do this passage this morning because... Uh, the Gospel of John gives us such a beautiful up-close picture of Jesus, as, you, as we've seen. These uh, snapshots of conversations and angles on Christ that we don't get in the other three. And so here, as we look at this promise of God being with us, Jesus being born, uh, I think it ties in quite well. In the context, in Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 6 has encountered this Holy, holy, holy God, if you know that story of him being in the throne room and the angels are crying out and there's an earthquake and smoke and Isaiah says, okay, I'll, I'll go with you, send me. And then God gives him this message of doom and gloom to give to the people. And he says that uh, exile is coming, they're going to be cut down. He says they'll be like a stump that's been burnt, but that a holy seed would come from the stump and new life would come. And so let's pick up in Isaiah in verse 2, the message has been that foreign nations are creating an alliance and are going to come and invade God's people. Verse 2 says, When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz the king and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And God goes on, he tells him not to worry, but if he will trust, don't be afraid. In verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. But Ahaz is still quite afraid. So in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you have wearied my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let me pray. Lord God, we pray that you would be with us. Holy Spirit, convict us. Speak to us through your word. We can't change ourselves. We need you to do it. So open our ears, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and mobilize our hands. That we would do your will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You probably saw the Super Bowl. Most Americans did. And this past year, it was one of the best uh, ever. I'm not a Pats fan. My parents live in Atlanta. <laughs> um, but it was this incredible incredible fourth quarter, if you recall, this amazing comeback. So much so that I was uh, going to Majnik this past weekend, the middle school retreat. Uh, yeah, that's right. 
And on the, on the radio, on the way there, they were still talking about the Super Bowl and how awesome it was. Um, the best article, though, that I read about the Super Bowl wasn't about the game. It was about the halftime show. Remember that? Lady Gaga. Yeah. If you remember, the, 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 the camera started on her, and she's standing just sort of in blackness. She's standing there with the microphone, and you can see these little lights buzzing around behind her. And you're like, what? how do they do that? What's going on? And as the camera pulled back, you saw that she was actually standing on top of the stadium in Houston. And there's a hole in the top of the arena. And then she jumped down to the stage. And listen to this article. Lady Gaga began her halftime show from a perch high above everyone else, above the stadium, underneath a drone-filled night sky. That's what the little lights were. I was like, oh, that's what that was. She was dressed in a glittery silver spacewoman outfit. Her eyes were bedazzled with a silvery mask. Everyone I spoke to beforehand was eager to see what Gaga would do, but anxious about whether or not she would get political. In that sense, it was a lose-lose for her. The house is obviously divided. Remember, it wasn't too long after the election, before the, or right after the inauguration. The house is obviously divided, and it was going to collapse on her no matter what she did. So what did she do? It would be incorrect for me to say that she descended into the pit. No, she jumped. She dove like Mary Martin's Peter Pan and flipped her way down to earth, a space woman plummeting into what is undoubtedly a mess of a place. A place of both New Englanders and Atlantans, of Democrats and Republicans, where the branches of government are battering rams, where children are rising against their parents, and where pirates of the Caribbean just won't quit. <laughs> and Gaga descended into the madness, a downward motion, mimicking the descent of God into the world. This is one of the most critical acts of God because it declares his agency once and for all over ours. Not that we would come to him, but that he would come to us. Fleming Rutledge describes the apocalyptic descent of Christ this way. We, the tyrannized inhabitants of a territory held by enemies, variously identified as sin, death, and the devil, can only be liberated by a movement from another quarter. The liberating force must be powerful enough, in the words of Jesus' parable, to bind the strong man, Satan. <laughs> The incarnation itself was widely understood during much of the Christian early era to be God's invasion of Satan's territory. Rutledge later goes on to explain that this vision of the victorious descending Christ must not be separated from the implication that we are the sinners. We are not mere victims being delivered. We are the very mess into which God is entering. We are the very sin that God becomes in order to deliver us from ourselves, which is where Gaga comes in again. After her plunge, she resurfaced, wearing football pads and looking more or less like she actually belonged, like she actually wanted to be there. She became a member of the team only after squatting at her piano bench and singing, I bow down to pray. Now, I missed that in the halftime show. I didn't see all that there, and I'm not sure that's what our fair lady Gaga intended. But there's an amazing picture that we see here in the passage. The virgin shall be with child. In Isaiah's setting, he's just encountered this holy God, and it's this 
threat of judgment is coming and this burning question is how can we be reconciled to a holy God? And the answer comes in this promise that he must come down, that he must join us. The promise of the passage, a virgin shall be with child and she shall call his name Emmanuel. In a word, we could call it grace. God moving toward us instead of running from our sin He moves toward us in the midst of it. So let's look at it a little bit more closely. First in our passage, what's the context? What is the context of grace? What is the context of God's nearness? So I tend to think that God comes near, or I think that God is near me, either one, when things are good, or two, when I am good. Either things are good or or I am good. First, things are good. You know, those times where life is just going your way. You know, th- things are going well at work. You crush that midterm. Um, you, you just got a raise. You're killing it on Tinder. Um, you, you got this delicious, you know, focaccia roast beef and uh, cheddar with the house dressing at the cheese shop and took a picture of it. Uh, <laughs> and you post, you share it. <laughs> Hashtag blessed right? That's what we think. Think that things are going good. God is with me. Things are going my way. I'm doing well in school. I got the internship. I'm going well. Things are good. Or maybe things aren't going your way. I got your order wrong. You, you couldn't sleep the night before the midterm and you, you couldn't even finish it. Uh, you're having problems at work. Maybe you're, you're about to lose your job or can't find a job. Things are chaotic at home. You can't get your kids to do the thing that you just told them to do. And it's not going okay. You know, things aren't going so great. But you know what? I've been reading my Bible a lot lately. I've been praying. You know, more. I went to church. And I didn't just mouth the words of the songs. Like I I really felt like I was worshiping. You know, which is weird for me. And it was great. It was real. I'm I'm doing pretty good. I've been pretty pretty good on my computer. pretty, Pretty, you know... Faithful for me, it's, it's going all right. I am well. That is when God is near. God is with me. And all those physical things are blessings. Those are good. Um, and there are times where, where God draws near to us in those ways when we're being faithful. But in our passage, that's not the case at all. Not in the context of Isaiah. And I, in our case, it's none of that. First, things are not good. Things are bad. They've just gotten this promise that nations will invade you and cut you down like a stump and burn you and then carry you into exile where you'll be slaves. This is worst case possible news. Now we've had a tough couple of weeks in our nation, right? A few hurricanes. Missiles are flying over Japan. And we're like, I really hope Dennis Rodman's got this. You know, Um, but what's going to happen? But in this case, it's even more so. Like in our daily lives, we're not particularly afraid, but this would be like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland have formed an alliance, and they're coming, and they're going to burn down Williamsburg, and they're going to kill half of you, and the rest of you will be slaves and concubines in their land, and it's coming quick. This is bad news. Worst case scenario. And then also, things are bad, but also the king. The king is bad. This is King Ahaz. And God gives him, it says, when the house of David heard, uh, the author Isaiah is reminding us, this is the royal line through which the Messiah will come. This is the good one. The 
kings of Israel, pretty much all bad, but there's a little hope in Judah, and these are the sons of David. He's going to make it happen. If he works this out, it'll be okay. If he repents and has faith, maybe it'll happen. And then God says to him, ask me anything from Sheol to heaven, from hell to heaven. Ask me any sign and I'll give it to you. Can you imagine having that promise? That's a, that's a quiet time for the ages, right? And then what does he do? Oh, far be it from me to put the Lord to the test. Like, oh, that, I would never, I would never. Now, to be fair, the scripture says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But not like this, not when he tells you, ask me for something. He's being self-righteous. He's being falsely pious. He's completely full of it. And, and Isaiah calls him out on it. Like, are you, is it not bad enough that you're exasperating all the people? You're going to exasperate God too? Are you going to weary me? And if you're still sympathetic towards Ahaz for saying this, Second uh, Chronicles tells us that he burned some of his sons in a fire in a sacrifice to the god Moloch. So he's pretty high on the list of despicable human beings. He's not great. He's not good. And yet to Ahaz, pompous, ironically self-righteous, child-sacrificing Ahaz, when he refuses to ask for anything after being commanded to do so, God gives a promise for the ages. Behold. Grace breaks in. Emmanuel is promised. That is the context of grace. Not when things are good or when I am good, but when it has all gone wrong. So a friend of a friend of mine, uh, he's a college athlete, uh, was very involved in the campus ministry, attractive, smart, popular, leading a Bible study, just well-respected in the Christian community at his college. And then uh, he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma while he was in college. And he was going through chemotherapy. And you know, kind of at the beginning, people are there and they kind of support you. But as time had gone on, he'd had to drop out of school. The friends dried up. And he's in the hospital going through chemo. And he described it as a spiritual spiral into depression. Angry at God. Gave up on prayer, gave up on the scripture, was just angry and sad and alone, very understandably, right? He was there in the hospital, and he had to use the bathroom. And he got up to walk to the restroom in his room, and his body just gave out. This, at, this college athlete falls right on his face and couldn't get up. And he was too far from the little button to call the nurse. He was just laying there on the floor. And he said later to his campus minister, it was there on the floor that I finally understood grace. Because he realized at that moment, he wasn't loved for his athletic prowess. He wasn't loved for his good spirituality. He wasn't loved for being attractive. He wasn't loved for being spiritual. There on the bathroom floor, Jesus met him and drew near to him because there on the floor is where he needed him, where he needed grace and where he could understand that I've got nothing right now, Lord. And God came near. When things weren't good and when he wasn't good, that's the context of grace. That's why grace is grace. The second, what's the content? 
the context of grace? What's the content in our passage of God's grace, of God's nearness? We've seen it. We read it every Christmas, right? Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and we shall call his name Emmanuel. A virgin shall be with child. He is a human being. He's one of us. A real baby born of a real woman. He's like us, but not like us. His name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God with us. He is God become man in the flesh. As our Gospel of John that we're studying says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Theologians call it the incarnation. God becomes man. And of course, this promise is fulfilled, as the Gospels tell us, of course, in the birth of Jesus Christ. And so at this point, a lot of us are going, yes, Ben, we know we're at church. Jesus is God and man. This is Christianity 101. We've got it. We've heard this. We've been to a Christmas Eve service. Have you heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? And maybe that's too strong, but it's certainly familiarity can breed complacency. It does for me. You know, well, the massive revelation. Jesus is God, man. Well, um, I had three conversations in my life where this doctrine was really driven home to me in a fresh way. I'm going to tell you all three of them. Uh, the first was not too long ago, maybe six weeks ago. And I uh, was playing uh, with my son. And we were reading some stories and playing Legos. And he said... Dad, if you were six years old, we'd be best friends. And I said, son, that's ageism. Where did you learn that? Like, you didn't, is this pulling you out of school? This is not, who taught you this? No, I'm kidding. Of course, no. Of course, it was, oh, it's just so touching, right? And then I thought to myself, that's exactly what Jesus did. Became a six-year-old. Became an infant. He became one of us so we could know him. The second conversation is when I was in college. I was with my friend Josh, my roommate. And uh, he was taking a religious studies course. And the assignment was uh, to go and interview an imam in a mosque, in a Muslim mosque. And so I went with him because uh, he wanted company. So we went down into downtown Chattanooga and found a, found a mosque. And they let us observe. And then we got to talked to the imam afterwards, and he only spoke Arabic, so one of the members had to translate for him, a, a equivalent of one of their elders. And as we were talking and dialoguing about our religions, what we believed, and so on and so forth, uh, he began to get really upset, which is, by the way, a cultural thing that sometimes at debate in that culture, you're supposed to get like really intense. It wasn't necessarily super mad at us, but he was definitely impassioned. And the thing that he zeroed in on, I, I kind of thought maybe it'll be like the Trinity or, or the crucifixion or something like that. But what, what he was upset about was this. That a virgin would be with child and that that child would be God with us. And he actually got very graphic to where the translator was a little embarrassed. Like, I don't know how to say this, but he's gesturing and he's basically saying to us, in short, have you ever seen a birth do you know what that's like? It's disgusting. It's gross. All the blood and the this and the that. And, and the translator's like, uh, I don't know. But he, we, we picked up the message. He said, that's appalling. You think holy almighty God would do that? And I, wow. Like he's kind of right. 
I mean, would God do that? And yet he did. It's absurd and wonderful that God would do that for us. And the third conversation was with a Hindu student at William & Mary a few years ago. Uh, she was Hindu. She loved RUF, though. She loved coming to our meetings. She loved hearing about Jesus. She loved having these conversations, and we would get coffee quite frequently. And the burning question for her is, how do I be humble? Because in my readings that I'm doing in my own religion, I keep being told to be humble, and I know I should be humble, and yet I see that I'm not because I'm trying to impress some people, and I don't care what other people think, and I know that that reveals pride in me. It's like, wow, that's profound. And so we, we look together at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and following. I'll read it to you. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we talk about this idea of humility, and she was saying, you know what, that is really fascinating. Because in my religion, I can see examples of gods will come and help you. And sometimes they'll even sort of take human form for a period, like they'll be like an avatar. And they'll come and they'll kind of help you be humble. But I've never known of one that would actually become a person, that would actually become a human being, that would actually suffer in your place, that would actually humble himself. And so it sounds like to me what you're saying is that in order for us to be humble in Christianity is that we have to go through him, the one who did it for us. I was like, yeah, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good interpretation. Uh, yeah, can I use that in a sermon? <laughs> Forever. <laughs> um, Yes, this beautiful thing of the incarnation. Let's not be complacent about it. It's extraordinary. And here's the thing. The imam is right. It's either appalling or it's beautiful. It's one or the other. I guess it could be appallingly beautiful. And it's such a demonstration of God's love. And it's so different than other things. And why does he do it? Because if you were a six-year-old, I could know you. Why did he do it? So he could know us. To show himself to us. Oh, quick aside, and this may be an objection that you have with Christianity and came up, so to speak, in these conversations. Part of the reasons I enjoy interfaith dialogue is, is that it helps refine things and help, help me understand the Christian faith even more by talking uh, to these uh, followers of other religions. But right now in our current cultural climate, the main thing that we think interfaith dialogue is good for is, is to say that we all really agree, right? That we're all the same. Actually, the opposite happens in these conversations I just told you about. But there's this metaphor that's, uh, I think, frequently used, this idea that all the religions are basically like a bunch of blind men, and each blind man represents a different religion, and they're all walking up to an elephant and feeling the elephant. And this religion says, oh, God is a tree trunk because he's holding the elephant's leg. And the other is like, oh, God is this big flat wall because he's touching the side of the elephant. And the other is like, oh, no, God's a whip because he's holding the tail. And the other is like, no, God is this massive horn. He's going to spear you right through because he's holding the tusk. And that the real truth is that all the religions are a little bit right and a little bit wrong, and God is actually the elephant, right? It's a great illustration. 
The problem with it, though, is that the only way that you could give that illustration is if you're the one prophet in the room who's not blind, which is the very thing that you're saying everyone else has to be. All of you are blind except for me. I see the one new true religion. So, not to be cruel, but it's a little hypocritical of an illustration. But here's the thing. We've not been left blind. How do I know that that illustration is off? How could I possibly know that? As just a human being, I never could. But what if the elephant speaks? What if he reveals himself? What if he shows us himself? C.S. Lewis famously said that we relate to God much like the way that Hamlet would relate to Shakespeare. That we know God through him writing himself in, showing himself to us. And there's some real truth in that, I think. But what if God goes even farther to reveal himself to us so we know that we're not just blind in the dark feeling our way through? Um, Dorothy Sayers is an author. Some of you may have read some of her work. Um, she was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. And she wrote detective fiction. There's these crime stories, these mystery stories. And uh, in this series of books, her main character, her Sherlock, was a man named Lord Peter Whimsey. And uh, he would go around and solve crimes and so on and so forth. And then as the series unfolded, Lord Peter Whimsey started to get lonely. He was alone. He was having a hard time. He was getting a little bit depressed. He was having a hard time solving his mysteries. And then a character appears in the, in the narrative. And her name is Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane meets him, and they fall in love. And uh, she starts to help him solve his mysteries, and they become this crime-fighting duo. Uh, incidentally, Harriet Vane was one of the first women uh, to graduate from Oxford University, this fictitious character. And she's an author. She writes detective fiction. Um, so what happened? Harriet Vane is Dorothy Sayers. And she wrote these novels. She fell in love with her character, Peter Wimsey. And then she saw that he was alone. And he was having a hard time, and he needed someone to save him. So she wrote herself into the story. God has done so much more than that. He didn't just write himself into the story. He actually entered into it. Christ became one of us. Why? So we could know him. He spoke through his word, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that he could be a six-year-old with us, so that he could go to the cross for us, so that he could rise again for us, so that he could ascend into heaven for us, so that he could send his spirit for us, and he will come again for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our risen king, that you know us.